you're listening to the Metamorphosis Podcast. What's up and welcome to Metamorphosis with Mackenzie, where transformation and inspiration meets empowerment. Delve into the realms of science, spirituality, and personal growth as I share powerful hacks, tools, and captivating stories from my travels and experiences all around the world. Not only am I going to have you fully entertained, but as a transformational mindset coach, I'm going to have you on your way to your hottest, happiest, healthiest, and most successful self before you even know it. So sit back and enjoy or pop those AirPods in and get your hot girl walk on. Let's dive into it. Hello, my angels. If 2024 is the year that you're tapping into more financial success than you've ever seen before, attracting and maintaining deep, meaningful relationships, and creating a more carefree life for yourself, then I'm about to give you the formula to make that happen. If you feel like you've been seemingly doing everything right, reading the books, listening to podcasts, buying the courses, consuming the info, you're dialed in and dedicated to your goals, willing to do whatever it takes to get there, and you've been putting the time and effort in, yet the deep and meaningful relationships that last still feel really foreign or creating more wealth and expansion within your business and finances feels nearly impossible at this point, or having a reality with full freedom to be whoever you want, do what you want, when you want, where you want, and however you want without limitation still feels so far away, listen up because I'm about to change everything for you. You're about to tap into the freedom, fortune, and fulfillment you came here to experience, where you become the person who is admired and valued and celebrated by everyone in your life, especially those closest to you. You're the person who's consistently sought after in business and receives both expected and unexpected notices of money hitting your bank account. You're the person who wakes up daily with a smile on your face and not a worry in the world, feeling like a kid just released for recess as you move throughout your day. Your modern metamorphosis is here. And no, it does not include camouflaging parts of yourself in order to be liked or putting up with less than you know you deserve. It does not include working harder and longer, fishing for leads or sales or bonuses within your work. It has nothing to do with accepting the box that you've been put into or convincing yourself that this is just how life is. In fact, doing the exact opposite of these things will be what actually opens up the doors to the things that you have been trying so hard to reach. You see, the freedom, fortune, and fulfillment that you crave does not respond to how much time, energy, or effort you're putting into making things happen. They respond to your energetic state, which is curated by the electromagnetic field created by your neurons firing up in your brain and being held and projected through your physical body. My brand new Metamorphosis Mastermind program is designed to help you rewire restrictive and outdated beliefs, changing those thought patterns, energetically upgrading so that you're not only knowing better, but able to do better helping you create a third-person awareness within yourself, allowing you to witness and experiment instead of identifying and judging yourself based on the outcome. It's going to help you curate a unique set of tools and processes for yourself to continue upgrading long after this program has finished. And finally, it's going to help you remove the resistance that stands in your way so that your natural desire is what drives your momentum instead of trying to rely on temporary motivation or rigid discipline. 
If this sounds like something you're ready to tap into, go to the links below and click on the mastermind one to get in touch with me for more information and apply before the doors close. Seats are limited and the mastermind will begin on February 22nd. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. There was a heavy amount of distrust mm-hmm. and lack of identity because I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I was acting the way I was acting. And as someone who took a lot of psychology and had a science background, I was like, I'm smarter than this. I know mm-hmm. why people behave a certain way. And it was easy for me to apply it externally, not so much internally. That's hard. It really That is. was a whole different battle and I I don't want to call it a battle because it wasn't it was difficult but it was beyond rewarding it was and this we can dive into and that's another important part of I think the the model that you're proposing is it gives people a start a place to start to change right particularly if you are at that point where you really you don't not only do you not trust other human beings you don't trust yourself right well-being and happiness is going to be next to impossible to achieve if you're approaching it from that perspective, right? Uh-huh. So the first thing you have to believe is that you can affect change. You have to start from that point. I can affect change, right? Uh-huh. Um, and you knew that rationally somewhere in your world at that time, but I really think it was your subconscious that really brought that to bear in that transition from the I to the we, because you became the first relationship that you had to have to build trust in relationships. It was you, right? I remember when my wife and I first met, she and I would talk about things like this a lot. And I'm I'm a deeply introspective person. I'm not saying that I, First of all, I don't always like what I see when I turn that lens in on my own mind. And sometimes it's just, it's self-serving, but sometimes it's healthy to be introspective, right? Yeah, I think it's human. Like if you want to grow as a human, you've got to be able to look at some of the not so pretty, exciting, glamorous things. But the introspection part, not everybody does that, right? Not everybody, it can be a very uncomfortable thing to be introspective. And that brings me to this story. So I have always been introspective, always been very aware of my faults, my inconsistencies and things like that, not always proud of them and not always psychologically capable of managing them, right? But at least I can say in almost every category, I've been aware of those problems. And once you're aware, then the question is, can I change them? Sort of like your your journey, your self-determination tour, right? Um. So anyway, my wife and I, we would have these conversations about things that I was doing that she didn't like and things that she was doing that I didn't like. And early on, one of the things that, like she would say something that I was doing that she didn't like, and I would argue or, you know, we would debate it. And then I would say, okay, yeah, I'll work on that. But it occurred to me, I'm like, after many of these conversations, she wasn't saying the same kind of thing. Like the conversation would end with either her just feeling badly because I pointed out all the ways what she was doing is wrong or feeling good because she'd convinced me that the way she was behaving was okay. But there wasn't as much of a, early on in our relationship, there was no acknowledgement that change could happen from her point of view. And so one day we had this conversation, I'm like, you do realize like, this is something you can change. And she, she turned to me and in all seriousness, she was like, I, I don't know that I can. And 
I was astonished, right? The idea to be in a mental state where you think that you are behaving in a way that makes life challenging for yourself and for the people around you. And at the same time that you're aware of that, you believe change is not possible. That would be demoralizing. That would be frustrating. So, I mean, for anybody listening, I mean, I think that, you know, there are pathological conditions from which change is very difficult. But for most people, the the science is clear. I mean, we know that the brain does change and we know that the synaptic connections among neurons change regularly as a result of responding to what's happening in the brain and in the environment, mm -hmm. right? Um, I wouldn't presume to suggest that change is easy, but it is possible, right? And there's no, there's no real doubt about that. Um, in the psychological space, we can talk about how some theorists' personality changes a little bit are a lot more difficult than other changes in behavior, but even personality has a dynamic range. So personality traits have a dynamic range. We can change within that range. It's not like it's, you know, if you are um, low on the scale of conscientiousness that you're always gonna be at that, that low point. You can right. grow a little bit, right? right? So once you realize you can change, it's a matter of how do you affect that change? And what I find fascinating about your story, and I'll let you get back to it now, is that you, you did that on your own, but in many ways, um, it was, I mean, it was kind of like this, this conflation of doing it at will, doing it intentionally, and also kind of unconsciously letting it parts of that happen. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, it's, I think there's a couple of things that I want to highlight and one tying back to like the very beginning of this conversation, but the reason that I even realized I had the tools to make the changes that I knew I could was because in your course of neuroscience, resilience, and well-being, we had a project about making a mantra. Mm. I don't know if you'll remember what my mantra was from years ago, but my mantra was to call myself out on my bullshit. I remember exactly what your mantra was. Yes. That's yeah. awesome. Remember it because that's great. I still use it. Like if, if it were something that I could put into a beautiful language and tattoo on my body, like I would, but that one, that one's not going to quite make the billboard just yet. No. Um, but I remember coming out of this crazy whirlwind of life that I had created. And again, finding myself just so deeply unhappy, despite having an immense amount of people and money and connection and like false autonomy. But I remember writing down on my balcony in Florida, like before I even made all my decisions. And I wrote down that I was like, you know, is, is this trusting and following my intuition or am I feeding into more of my own bullshit? Yeah. And I had to write that and explore that because I really, truly like, that was something that I had to rewire and make a new focus of, okay, can I trust myself with this? Or am I feeding the fire? That's not serving me. Right. And so that's, that's ultimately what came back and like started all of this is I knew I needed to make change. And I think what's important to recognize about change. And I talk about this in my masterclass and with my clients is like, change is inevitable at the end of the day. Like everything is in motion. Things will always be changing and transforming. And entropy the, happens. What's that? 
entropy happens. Everything is moving exactly. to a higher state of chaos, no matter how you look at it. I mean, at the most fundamental level, sorry. No, no, this is perfect. And what I think is really important to hi highlight within change is sometimes the change is a desired intentional change that we know we want to make for ourselves. And sometimes change comes in as a life happens type of situation where you're forced mm. now into a change. Yep. And regardless of what that change looks like or has been catalyzed by, mm -hmm. it comes down to your ability to put away or tuck aside the ego, which creates identity and grasps so closely to having a specific look or personality trait and saying, let's try something different. I know that this is what we know. I know that change is possible. I know that it's inevitable and we can either ride that wave and take the current mm -hmm. or we can fight like hell to try and hold on and just continue to get beat up along the way. Or I'd say that and give it a little bit more of a, a different, a slightly different spin, recognize that there are times that we are affecting change in our lives that isn't good and recognizing that other people are affecting change in our lives that can be good. I mean, because I do think there is a, a tendency to, and you alluded to this, it's like sometimes change just happens to us, right? Mm -hmm. And unless it's overtly, like we won the lottery, right? Unless right. it's something overtly communally agreed on being good, I think some people have the tendency to push back against that change being foisted on them as something bad. But we always need to maintain a perspective of, okay, regardless of whether or not this is something that I thought I should do, is this a good thing for me, right? Mm -hmm. Is And that's important because I think there are many cases, and we've all convinced ourselves, that I've engaged in bad behaviors throughout my life, that whilst engaged in them, I rationally justified every single part of that shitty behavior. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until somebody else was like, hey, you know, maybe you should think about this. And what's your first reaction when you're, you're engaging in a behavior that you think is great and is fulfilling you in every possible way, mm -hmm. and you can rationally argue. And then someone comes in and says, um, just so you know, you're kind of an asshole, right? right. And then you go, well, no, I'm not. Right. And really what they're trying to do, particularly people who care about you, and sometimes people who don't care about you, they're trying to point out that this is something you could change. Now, they might be wrong, obviously. Right. If your position on life is that you look at every time someone suggests change as this imposition, this forcing their will on you, and you're not going to do it, you might be missing opportunities to change for good. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that that's when the power of discernment comes in. And again, knowing yourself and where it is you're going and the path that you're on, because we talked about this last time too, the sugar versus salt. Like some people are going to come into your life having a specific agenda for themselves. And again, it's not to say that they're a bad person. Maybe they are, but maybe they're not, right? Like they're functioning from their frame that they've got. Whether that serves you or not is up to you to discern and continue to remain open to because that is ultimately where I found myself going down these paths that weren't serving me was because I was being convinced or led by something that had a different agenda than what I personally had for myself. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, when you talk about, there's one of the questions here on your sheet about long-term impact. Um, mm -hmm. 
the first thing is you need to understand what makes you happy. How are you going to satisfy these basic needs, biological or psychological needs? What about them is important to you and how are they important? Once you identify those things, then you have to accept that you can change, right? So, and I mentioned you have to start from the position of change. I guess you could look at that either way. The first thing is you have to believe you can change and then think about the things that you want to change. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't spend, and we're not trained, we don't spend the time and we're not trained to be able to sit back and consider in what aspects the parts of our lives address these needs in healthy ways versus unhealthy ways, right? We just tend to let it happen or we tend to default to what is easy and overt, money-making, um, number of likes on Twitter, X or whatever it is now, right? That's, that is the validation that I need and I'm gonna focus on when really I'm ignoring all those other aspects. And so to, to discover that we have to turn our lens in and do what you're doing, I think with your clients and say, what is it that's really important among these things? And how can you affect that change? You, you with me? And I think that's what your yeah. journey. Yeah. Yeah. And this actually goes back to, to the conversation we had last week where I did my launch so different than I typically do. And I had talked to you and I was like, you know, my goal was 10 people. And I said to screw the goal, let's set it aside and make a feeling and an intention, the goal. And I accidentally, and I use the word accidentally attracted, you know, almost four times that. And you were like, no, Ken's, this is, there's nothing done by accident here. And what I think I've been able to clarify this as, as I've been just ruminating on our, our conversation over the last week, is the fact that we can go into things with expectations or experiment. And when you're experimenting, you're allowing in so much more of that feedback to not necessarily talk about who you are identity-wise, where you're now at fault or not good enough, or you are an asshole or whatever it is, you get to just come in with, okay, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm being presented with. What does that say about the process? What does that say about the method of action that's happening here instead of identifying with it? Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. I'm thinking about it when you, what, the most valuable people I think that we have are the people that satisfy these needs. And ultimately they're the people that I can ask a question. I can say, look, this is what I think, this is how I think I'm satisfying these in my life. These are the things that are important to me. Do you think, is that what you see? This is your experimentation model, right? Mm -hmm. So I am literally dabbling in the things that I think are working for me, but we do, I think we all benefit from having someone who is important, whose opinions and thoughts we value, who are rational, to be able to look at us and what we're doing and say, yeah, we agree that you're doing those things that are important to you or for you. Mm -hmm. In the absence of that, I mean, I guess to put it in a really sort of <laughs> ridiculous academic way is if you go to study for an exam all by yourself, right? It's easy to believe that you've studied all the things correctly. Uh -huh. But if you study with someone else and you quiz each other and you say, you know, okay, the answer to this question is X and they go, mm, not so much, uh -huh. right? Would you be upset at that point that they corrected you or would you be grateful and express gratitude for the fact that they were help helping you see the world, your world in a better way? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's the biggest limitation that we have as human beings, which unless you study the mind as a piece of meat up in your head, you don't necessarily realize because your average person walking through the life probably doesn't think about the fact that there are chemicals being released through their brain, making them think, feel, do certain things. And the most limiting way to live your life is to think that there's no more capacity to grow, no capacity to change, not realizing that you have opportunity to take in valuable information and insight from other people. So when we talk about change, like inside of the brain, in simple terms, how can we, how can we describe what that process looks like? The retraining of the elephant. Oh, Height's elephant. So for the listeners who aren't familiar, Jonathan Height has a metaphor about human behavior. He comes from the position of moral psychology and his, his position is that human behavior and particularly morality is driven by two things, the elephant and the rider. And the elephant is our unconscious, um, and I, I think he would agree with this summary, is our unconscious mind that is largely where we're coming from and our moral judgments. We don't really know where they're coming from. We're not aware of it. And then our consciousness, our conscious mind is the rider. So you can imagine this small rider on top of a massive element trying to change the direction or steer the direction of the elephant. Mm-hmm. And your question is, what are the biological neuroscientific underpinnings of changing the direction of the elephant. Is that, do I understand that correctly? Yes, because I think a lot of people know that they might want to make a change, whether they want to make more money, lose weight, create better relationships, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yet again, you're on this elephant. How, Mm -hmm. how can we start to gain control and retrain? Okay. So let's start it because Hyde himself uses this great, and he has a, uh, um, a presentation on this it's available on youtube and i'm sure elsewhere but the example he uses is that if you want to change is not easy right we wouldn't want to have brains that change just every second of every day that would be a very difficult way to exist so in some ways we're grateful that change isn't super easy or you can imagine we change whatever position we had every 30 seconds now that said when we talk about behaviors if we want to change a behavior um, we need to engage the parts of our world that would increase the probability of that behavior. Now, height, Height's example is he's like, okay, I need to exercise, but I really like ice cream, right? And I'm probably going to destroy this example, but people are welcome to fact check it up. It's basically that, okay, you need to exercise, but you like ice cream. Well, is there an ice cream store a mile away, uh, two miles away? walk to the ice cream store, get ice cream, right? Then once you do that, maybe challenge yourself to jog to the ice cream store or the ice cream parlor or whatever. And then as you feel yourself, because you are satisfying those hedonic, from my perspective, this is different from Heights um, point of view, maybe, is that by integrating and incorporating consciously those things that we know that are going to make us feel good, we're able to engage in other behaviors and essentially when we're doing this we are reshaping the brain reshaping reforming new connections in the brain that now running or exercising is connected to the reward of ice cream the neuronal level we think is that the the literally the neuronal connections that represent things like exercise at a conscious level um which may have up until that point 
been strongly connected to neural activity associated with pain and suffering mm -hmm. now get at least additionally connected to neural activity in the brain associated with reward. And then over time, we reinforce those neuronal connections. Now jogging or exercise is less connected to the pains and suffering and more connected to the reward. Is that making sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this, my face got excited for a second because it sparked this thought that I was having about motivation. And a lot of people come to me asking me like, how can I be more motivated? How can I be more disciplined? Like, I know I want this, but I just can't, can't do it. And first of all, the language, obviously saying that you can't do it is the first problem, yep. but this has gotten me to explore motivation even deeper because again, like this is, this is what I do with my clients. This is what we talk about and how we face change. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we've got our external motivations, right? Like the reward systems that we're getting from validation, praise, tangible ice cream, things like that. But then there's also internal motivation. And I think that there are two-ish ways to describe that because we've got internal motivation that can come from self-criticism in a negative way, being like, oh, I, sh I need to get my ass up off this couch and go do something because otherwise I'm a lazy pile of shit, right? But then we also have more of this intrinsic sense of motivation where you're able to do something because you either love the process itself or you enjoy the outcome that's coming from the process that may not be as pleasurable, but you know you want the outcome. Maybe this is a good opportunity for us to talk about the distinction between hedonia and eudaimonia. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about that briefly. Um, in the world of philosophy, the perspective of well-being and happiness, literally thousands of years and many, many, many philosophers tackled this idea and they've converged in many of it, not all of it, much of it has converged on this idea of happiness in two spaces. There's hedonia, which um, many of your listeners might understand or recognize as hedonism, Right now, hedonia in the philosophical sense is much more than hedonism, but it's related to hedonism and it's related to satisfying sort of our immediate wants and desires, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, that's tethered very closely and, and coupled, excuse me, very tightly to our basic biological needs, right? Um, but in addition to hedonia, just like we know you can't live a life that's ultimately gonna be very happy if all you do is succumb to every time you wanna eat sugar, you eat sugar. Every time you wanna have sex, you have sex. No matter the situation, no matter where you are, no matter how much, you're just constantly trying to feed or scratch that itch, right? You're never gonna be happy. Um, and so on the other end of this sort of happiness or well-being spectrum is the concept of eudaimonia. And for the eudaimonia, um, from the eudaimonia perspective, what matters is meaning making, right? Okay, so meaning making, it turns out, is very important for our well-being. But meaning making doesn't have embedded in it the idea of making us feel good right now. Mm. Have to, in some ways, think about the fact that in many cases, to live a life of meaning, we've also tethered this, and this is broadly represented in our histor history and writings, 
but you can think about the monk that willfully forgoes any physical gratification or satisfaction um, to find this meaning in their world, right? Yeah. Meaning has been, I think, incorrectly tethered to suffering in some ways, although suffering can be a part of it because it build resi builds resilience. Okay, so why am I bringing these two things up? I'm bringing them up because in some ways, in the literature in the past and what I've read, and again, anyone in the your listeners that can wants to correct me can, but I see this as people talking about it as if it's one or the other. You're either living a life of hedonia where you're basically just you know, you're living for the moment, you're satisfying those basic needs and wants right now, or you're living this austere life of meaning making. And that's bullshit. We all live both, right? We all live both. And in fact, if we can successfully couple um, our feelings of reward that we get on the hedonic side with the meaning making, then we have that success. Then we can match, we can meet with that success because what we're doing is just like the walking to or jogging to, we have the meaning making side of that, the eudaimonic side, which is the exercise, right? right? It is suffering by definition in many cases, I'm engaging in physical activity that in some cases hurts, right? Why on earth would I do that, right? Are we in, am I in love with the process of causing myself physical pain? No, I'm not. Now, some people might be, but I'm not, right? That's just not my gig. Um, so why would I do it? Well, I do it because I believe that in the future, it will make me literally feel better. I will be more likely to be able to engage in, say, more hedonic activities, right? If I want to eat ice cream, well, I've got to be able to get up off the couch and go do it, right? So by coupling this understanding that I will be able to activate those reward pathways and I will feel good eventually by engaging in these more meaning-making endeavors, we're more likely to engage in them. Yeah. Right. Is that, is that resonating? Yeah, absolutely. And I know a lot of my listeners are very entrepreneurial focused and as am I. So when I'm thinking about this, you know, we've got this hustle culture that's like, your life has to suck. You have to sacrifice happiness, holidays, family time, friend time in order to build a successful business, which is not true. Again, by definition, it doesn't have to be the only reality we accept. However, mm -hmm. if you were to only chase the instant gratification, you're going to have a really hard time continuing to grow and continuing to compound because every time you get that reward, you're consuming it. Yep. Money, typically, right? And I think one of the best ways that I've been able to do this for myself within my business is staying very long track minded, long-term minded while also incorporating carrots is what I like to call them. Like the little right. carrots that can dangle. And it's every single time I get paid, the first person that gets paid is me. And it's mm -hmm. always 10%. And that 10%, whatever it is, gets to be my fuck you money. Like, what do I want to spend it on? How ridiculous do I want to be? What do I feel pulled to? Amazing. 30% gets reinvested in my business, goes towards my development, whatever it is, because I know long-term that's what's sustaining the momentum. That's what's building that long-term reward. But exactly. I think you said, you got to have both. You have to have an integration because we don't want to just show up without reward. And mm -hmm. we also can't just continue to overconsume and overindulge. If you're doing it just for the moment, then you're a junkie. If you're avoiding it, 
um, altogether, then you're a monk, right? There are those those two extremes, and I think that just if we can get addicted to drugs, we can be addicted to certain aspects of what makes what we believe makes us happy, right? Like we've already talked about. So if you're hustle and you're like, I've got to suffer, and you believe that the suffering, the reason you're suffering is for making the money, you're a junkie for the money, right? And there's nothing wrong with that other than you're a junkie, right? What's the purpose? If you lose sight of what the money's for, where, why is this endeavor making you happy, right? How's it contributing to your happiness? And in your case, and in other cases, what I can see is that in many ways, right, the, the hustle, if you look at it in the right way, which is, yeah, I'm suffering now, but my suffering now gets me to a place of autonomy, relatedness and connectedness where I want to be. It allows me, like, let's take your fuck you money. Like if you get that fuck you money, what do you do with it? What do you spend it on? I've got a list. It just depends on what, like, I'm like, this time I want new earrings. This time I want a tattoo. This time I'm going here and I'm going to spend X, Y, Z amount of money having the best balcony and the best restaurant food. Like it's different. It's literally, what do I want to indulge? In? And what is that an express an expression of when you break it down in terminology we've talked about today? It's autonomy, 100% uh -huh. autonomy. It is you saying, fuck you and everybody else. I can do this for me, right? Yeah. It is <laughs> straight out autonomy. And right. so while, while you're engaging in all these other things out of part of your profession and your, your chosen path, you're working with other people, you're helping other people, and you may be giving up different aspects of your life, but you are doing it knowing that at the end of the day, among other things that you get from it, you get this elevated autonomy, which is seems and is very important. And I think it's important to a lot of entrepreneurs, in fact. Mm -hmm. But once you recognize that, then it becomes what you're talking about. Those are the carrots that become really important because you're not just working for the money, you're working for the autonomy that that money is able to provide you. Right, right, yeah. You give that up, you're, you're just a junkie. Yeah, and I've, I've been on both sides. I have been <laughs> on both sides. I've been the person who hustled just to get my fix and what I could buy designer, what I could flash in front of people and like, you know, X, Y, Z, and just boast about what I had. And again, that's when I was the most unhappy with my life. Mm -hmm. And it's, it has nothing to do with the money or whatever else was going on. It has to do with the fact that I was chasing highs that were incredibly temporary and had exactly. zero meaning, zero meaning. Then go, I, oh, this just makes me so happy. Yes. I think this is actually a perfect segue and this will probably be one of the final topics we talk about here, but autonomy became something that I realized and could actualize when you approached me with the heterodox project mm -hmm. and the research project and essentially what heterodoxy means and to anybody who's listening it's not even a really common word i would beg to say but what we might be more familiar with is orthodox right and orthodox is all about tradition fitting in assimilation not being challenged just going with the status quo going with what's known and heterodox heterodoxy on the other side of that challenges all of that it mm -hmm. says let's strip away everything that we've ever known let's embody our own perspective, our own value, our own wisdom and identity and find and create environments in which that thrives. It becomes available. 
Well, you don't want to forget the another critical part is that you have to embrace different perspectives in that. The heterodox perspective is that in order for us to achieve more as a collective, we need to value and recognize differences. And this goes feeds back to our, if I'm just studying for myself, I think I'm always right, right? But if I'm studying with other people, i.e. I get a different perspective, then I can grow more. And that's one of the tremendous assets associated with a heterodoxy kind of approach is that you can and I can benefit from different perspectives so that we understand that it can lead to personal growth. On my point, I get back to the quiz analogy. I perform better on the quiz, right? Or in workspace by listening to your perspective and by incorporating different perspectives about success and well-being I can actually become more successful and more happy, right? Versus if I just sit in my own head and I say, oh, I'm happy, I'm happy. How are you today? I'm happy, right? So I think that's an important part of the heterodox approach is the appreciation of different perspectives. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So when it comes to autonomy then, that's that's kind of where this connection was happening for me is like, in order to even allow ourselves to become autonomous, we have to recognize that we're different from individuals and that no, no one person is the exact same. And again, coming back to the subjective definition of happiness, success, things like that. And so I feel like. Let me connect. Can I try? While you're yeah. Thinking. Yeah. Are you? My brain is so autonomy. I can see the wheels turning and I've been, it's a really good point. Um, in order for me to be able to grow, right. The relationships matter, relatedness, being competent, believing I'm competent matters, but unless I have some belief or unless I understand my autonomy in the world, I will always be beholden to other people, right? I will not feel like I have control to affect change, right? So in the case of the heterodox or multiple perspectives world, if I don't believe I have control, what difference does it make if I listen to other perspectives? Because it's not going to affect me. I'm just, or I don't have any control in the situation, right? Whoever is in my life that does have that control they're the ones that are going to dictate what I do. So listening to other perspectives doesn't really matter. Yeah. You following me? Yeah. I don't know if that aligns with what you were thinking, but autonomy is really important. That So in other words, we have to have the confidence in ourselves to be um, active decision makers, mm -hmm. um, to be able to listen to other people's perspectives and understand that that can and will or can affect our decisions. Yeah. Yeah, our ability to remake the wheel. Yeah. Make, make it our own wheel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, reinventing the wheel. I love that. And truthfully, like that's how I've that's how I've built my business. I've spent a lot of money, ridiculous amounts of money buying strategies, XYZ steps and proven systems and blah, 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 blah. And it's one of the biggest reasons that I don't adopt that within my own coaching is because I don't believe that any one person has the solution, the steps. I think it's about inquiring and being curious and accumulating all the information you possibly can so that you can decide what pieces you're using and how you're going to build that for yourself. But 
using yourself as your compass, your internal compass as that autonomy. Now, how are you going to know? Yep. I'm with you. Let's finish on this. So how are you going to know what to take in from your world? For me personally, and this is going to come back to a fluffy term, but for me personally, I feel like one of my strengths and one thing that I've been able to really tap into is the feeling and recognition of alignment. Mm -hmm. Alignment being something that supports me in my growth. It's almost like a homeostasis type of thing in my mind when I think about it. So when I'm looking at something and I'm buying a new course or I'm in a program, they might have 10 steps listed. One is going to feel incredibly easy, natural, empowering, and expansive to me. And that will be the piece that I take. Why is it going to be feel natural? This is now, this is Professor Dunbar coming out, right? Oh, I love Why it. It's going to feel natural to you. Why is that? What do you have to know, at least at some level, for that, for you to connect to that part of the training? This is going to get fluffy. All right. Dr. Dunbar is meeting fluffy Kens, but let's hear it. <laughs> I feel like for me, when I think of something being natural, it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't challenge involved. Doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that there's not growth involved. However, mm-hmm. it's something that I will gravitate towards. It will make sense out of more than other things. And I'll feel connected to the result of it. Okay. Yeah. Let's get down to it because you you are, I agree with the terminology, but take the idea of alignment and it feeling natural at some level there, what you're really connecting to are all the things we've talked about, you know, does it feel natural because you have a need or a want for more autonomy? Does it feel natural because you have a need or a want for more expression of competence, right? If you go down, if you're able to structure and understand the elements of your well-being in a more conscious way, a more direct way, then when you look out at the world and you're saying, oh, what about this program is really relevant to me? Oh, it's this part, you know, now I understand why this part is so relevant because it allows me to achieve more autonomy, which is one of the things that is really important to me at this time in my life or whatever. Mm-hmm. In the absence of having those those types of foundational principles clarified in our own mind, um, we are stuck with what I would consider to be the more fluffy terminology. I mean, I don't disagree with you. It feels like alignment. It feels like, um, what was the other term you used? Natural, Uh right? It is natural because you do have those needs. But until you recognize those needs, you're constantly just going to be looking out at this world and then randomly something will happen and you're like, oh, that feels natural. Well, why the fuck does it feel natural, right? Uh unless you have the vocabulary, unless you've sat down as a person and do something or gone on a journey like you've gone on and identified slowly but surely and method, um, and intentionally, these are the things that make me happy. These are the things that I need, right? To be happy. Unless you've done that, it's just randomness. It's like, oh, I encountered this person and oh, I feel good. Why do I feel good? Oh, I don't give a shit why I feel good. I just do, right? And you're constantly struggling with that. So I think a tremendous value to the the approach that you're taking and the the direction that you're going to potentially be giving people is that going through the exercise of figuring out what it is that actually is valuable to us. Mm 
-hmm. right? Having a space to explore that and then recognize that once we understand that, then we can be more self-directed in terms of picking and being aware of, well, this change matters because it helps me in this way. This program matters. This person matters. My behavior in this way matters because of the way it's satisfying these biological and or psychological needs. You can give yourself much more direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not skeptical. My brain, I'm literally just thinking, I'm like, this is like a $10,000 conversation. Like, (laughs) That's, that's what the thought was like, this conversation is worth so much. And I think that there's so much power that people don't recognize that they have because they haven't taken a second to get comfortable and think, why do I feel this way about something? Why is this important to me? What is this bringing to me? What psychological or biological need is this fulfilling for me? And how can I use my how can I use, like you were doing, how can I use those things that make me happy in the moment to drive behaviors that make me provide meaning in my life and make me happy in the long term? Well, where does that meaning come from? Go back to the psychological needs or some, and I'm not pitching self-determination theories, three psychological needs as the only psychological needs. There are there are plenty of other theories that's just more or permutations of this, but identifying those things that are the most important to you is hugely freeing it's wonderful. Right. So. Yeah. I think it all just, again, ties back to more autonomy. For you. For me, for me, which is something I've always valued. I've always been a, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it myself. I'm independent. Nobody can tell me X, Y, Z. And even if you do tell me X, Y, Z, I'm going to go out and learn the lesson myself. Like that's my personality at heart. So now, I think as we, and there have been other studies, and we don't have to get into this because we only have a few minutes left, but I think that um, other studies have demonstrated that what matters to us at one point in our life might not matter to us at, might not matter to us equally at another point in our life. And this is another, I think, critical um, aspect of our conversation for people to really understand is that sometimes we get stuck believing that what mattered to us 10 years ago is what should matter to us now, even though in the satisfaction of that thing that mattered to us 10 years ago, we're not meeting with any more happiness because as we age, we know that relationships, for example, matter more, right? Our legacy matters more in some ways. And recognizing that is a step towards happiness. So for you right now, no doubt, autonomy, the fuck you money and fuck you, that matters, right? And there's nothing wrong with that because it's satisfying a large sense of that autonomy. But for other people, um, they might already have that, right? And they've got a great deal of autonomy and they realize that, wait a minute, this thing that Mackenzie's talking about, that's not really, that autonomy is not really what I'm missing, right? What am I missing? Well, I've got competence up the wazoo. I'm CEO of this company. I've got tons of money. and I've got autonomy because nobody tells me what to do. I do whatever shit I want to do, right? And they're like, but I'm still not happy. Well, why not? Because it's somehow in enacting those two, you've perhaps um, pushed to the side something that really does matter to you, which is that relatedness. And beyond the relatedness, I think the, the you put it, and I think I might try to use this in the future, although the acronym doesn't work as well, that connectedness idea right? Building those relationships that are valuable, that are meaningful, not just present. Any, yeah. 
So they might be experiencing a transition from, look, that autonomy and that competence really mattered, but now these other things really matter. Yeah. And I actually experienced that heavily when I was on my, on my self-determination tour, <laughs> I had all the autonomy in the world. Like I created that for myself. And what I found out while I was going through that is, yeah, it's amazing catching sunsets everywhere in the globe. Like I can do that wherever and whenever I want. But you know what I didn't have? I didn't have someone to sit there and say, wow, this is really incredible with me. You were an autonomy junkie at the time. Mm -hmm. And I came back with such an appreciation for connectedness and for my family. And that is actually something I've really deepened into over this last year. Like one of my, one of my lessons that I reflected on from turning five to 26, turning 25 to 26 was that my family, not by blood definition, but my family is in like the people I surround myself with and love. Mm -hmm. They're my fortune. No matter how much money or autonomy I have, people, relationships, quality individuals, like that, that's my fortune. And running, going full circle then, why? Because relationships increase the efficiency at which we can achieve all these other things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was beautiful. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Dunbar, for this enlightening conversation and bringing so much of your expertise to people listening and understanding that change is not only inevitable, but it's incredibly possible. And you've got the reins. You're the person sitting on top of that elephant. You can truly redirect intentionally with all of the different tools that we just discussed, all the motivators, all the needs. I've, like I said, this, this was a $10,000 conversation. So I'm incredibly grateful and I'm just excited to put this out into the world. Me too. Hopefully, hopefully it helps some people. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Dunbar, I want to just ask you quick, how can people get connected to you? Do you want people connected to you? What does that look like? Um, well, given that it's your podcast, I think like I do have a personal email, but I probably give it to you. And then if people want to get in touch with me through you, they can. Cool. And then also too, you've done a fair amount of publishing and research on your own. So mm -hmm. are you okay with me listing past research projects, publications, and things like that of yours? You can, there's not that much out there, honestly. Just had a book chapter. Petzold and Nichols and I just had a book chapter accepted that has to do with um, communication and science. I've got another publication that I'm working on with a student right now that has to do with um, expression, your comfort, how comfortable you are. Well, it's the Heterodox Academy stuff. She's got something that might be coming out. Finally, since you started this, you know, and you did start this. We just, your name came up in, with such favor the other day in our lab meeting. We were talking about you and pointed out to every student, because we've now gone through probably what, 30 students or more, more than that since you left, um, you know, that this really was you that started this, the IRB, you, right? The, the initiative, you. And I love to acknowledge that because it's, Again, we don't grow and learn in isolation. Thank you so much, Dr. Dunbar, for this conversation and for being here and for enlightening so many individuals and opening them up to the possibility of change and the immeasurable value they bring to themselves in the world if they were to utilize that.
Truly my pleasure. Thanks for having me.